Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, April 5th, 2012, and our special guest is Joseph Grenny, co-author of some best-selling books. Joseph, thanks so much for being here. Steve, I've been looking forward to it. I, I sure am impressed with the influence that you're exerting in the education sector and happy to try to contribute. We are bringing you in a little bit from a, an arena that doesn't uh, normally get discussed in the at least in the ed tech and the ed reform side. But I'm hoping I'm hoping that um, this is a positive and we'll be able to have your voice be a little bit more broadly heard. Do I have the books in the correct order? There, crucial conversations, crucial confrontations, influencer, and change anything. Uh, that, that's the proper publishing order, but, but honestly, the, the topic that has kind of engaged our minds for the past 25 years, my colleagues and I, has been the influencer topic. It really is the one that wraps around everything. just took us longer to be able to figure out how to tell that story. So it, it answers the question, or at least our tentative answer, how do you drive profound, measurable, and sustainable behavior change in a complex social system? And, uh, and so that really is the largest question that we've asked. And uh, crucial conversations and crucial confrontations were, were insights that fell out of that larger question. Good. I, I'm actually going to ask you about that. The, uh, we'll do a little bit of intro here first. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, helping educators find places to hold conversations of substance. And we appreciate Blackboard Collaborate providing this room. Classroom 2.0 is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year. This is really fun. We're doing a special project with PBS NewsHour. If you go to classroom20.com, click on Ed Incubator, you'll see the teacher council that we've been building for PBS NewsHour. We also are producing Classroom 2.0, the book, a crowdsourced book on the use of social media and Web 2.0 in education. We are getting incredible um, submissions. So uh, look for a book project at the top of the website. Feel free to join in. Uh, just a terrific project, a lot of fun. Coming up at the ISTE show, the big ed tech show in June in San Diego this year is ISTE Unplugged. These are all of our sort of shadow events, the crowdsourced events around the conference, which include the ever popular All Day Saturday Unconference, now being called Social EdCon, previously called EduBloggerCon. Please do join us. All of these activities are free. There's something to do every day. Really a lot of fun, and we really appreciate the support we get from ISTE for these activities. Coming up on April 21st is the Social Learning Summit. This is a worldwide uh, all-day virtual conference on social media and Web 2.0 in education. Really a, an incredible set of topics that, have, that are going to be presented that day. Thanks to Discovery Education for sponsoring this event. Uh, go to sociallearningsummit.com or go to classroom20.com and just look for the link. Uh, coming up in October, our second Future of Libraries conference, sponsored by San Jose State University. Uh, two days, 150 sessions, all around libraries and librarians and librarianship. Um, and then in November, our five-day global education conference, uh, four to 500 sessions, 24 hours a day, five days. If you haven't done this with us before, it's a blast. Hope you'll join us. Uh, we do have two conferences committed, but we're not, we don't have dates yet for them, a gaming and education conference and an alternative education conference. Stay tuned for more information. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, Jennifer Fox, the author of Your Child's Strengths, talks about the problems with traditional content. Jennifer started a new school in Texas all around uh, 
the Strengths Finders and Children's Strengths material. Lots of fun. Mark Tucker takes us to the completely other end of the spectrum, looking at the OECD tests and um, and the countries that do well and the lessons for the United States on that. Uh, anyway, lots of fun up there. Lots of um, terrific guests coming up. Hope you'll find something there that's of interest to you and uh, you'll want to join us again. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded. Yesterday we heard from the ever-brilliant Howard Rheingold on his new book, Net Smart. I have to say, this, uh, you're going to hear me talk in loving terms about Joseph's books. Feel the same way about Howard's new book. This is a must-buy book, Net Smart. Uh, if you're a parent, a teacher, there are profound insights in this book that are going to have us talking for a long time. Before that, Dick Gale talked about appreciative inquiry and positive deviance in education. Those topics will come up tonight. David Warlick talked about gardening and personal learning networks. Kathy Davidson on her new book, Now You See It, Mimi Ito. Uh, anyway, they're all up there in full Illuminate versions and MP3 recordings. So Joseph, I've, I've been waiting for this as well. Um, before we sort of dive into the, what you started there with the uh, the order of the books and their importance, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history here. Um, I came to a training that you did uh, in Provo, Utah, uh, because I was uh, participating in a, a retreat for a humanitarian organization. And Jim Mayfield, who started that organization, and your own David Maxfield have both been on the show. And we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of this work and my own deep interest. And I want to show you, this is, a, this is the Steve Hargadon version of the Sources of Influence grid. And I end up doing this at least a couple times a month. We'll have somebody over, we'll start talking, we'll get out the butcher paper, and we'll start drawing. And here's here's my note card that I took away from your session. With my <laughs> I <notes>. love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I, this, this material has really captivated me. Uh, you know, I feel sort of deeply influenced by it. Um, and I was interested in kind of the sequence of the books and, and how they played out, um, because it, it felt to me as though the ability to hold a crucial conversation would actually fall into the category of being a vital behavior. Is that a fair way to look at it? Yeah, that's precisely the case. So, so uh, again, our, our enduring question has been, how do you create systemic behavior change? And, uh, and what we found is that one of the greatest barriers to creating change in an organization is undiscussability. That, that, that oftentimes uh, a vital behavior that leads to a disproportionate amount of change is just learning how to talk about emotionally and politically risky things in a far more effective way. So that's a subset element of the influencer model, but we began paying an enormous amount of attention to it and, and trying to study how people do that well because it was clear that that was a, a critical element of driving change in a big system. So I used this graphic with David, and he seemed to feel it was okay that I cribbed it off your website or somewhere. 
But, uh, is this still the... Too late now, so... <laughs> I'm at it. <laughs> you can sue me. I'll, I'll pay you all the revenue from the show. So is this still sort of the basic imagery you use for the influencer model? Yes, it is. It emphasizes that the, the three things that influencers do that the rest of us tend not to do as well. And, and so those really answer to why it is when we're trying to drive change, whether it's in an educational system or a corporate system or, a, uh, or in society at large, we tend to do it so badly. And, and the best way to read the model is right to left rather than left to right. So, so that's really the order in which you design a good influence strategy. So I'm going to leave this up because I spent a whole day with you and I still had to go home and make all of those notes and really kind of figure things out. And I know that it's, it's easy for me to look at this model now and, and see the sense in it, but there will be those who watch this and, and won't have that. So before we kind of drill down on each of these separate pieces, um, what's the background here? I don't think this happened overnight, right? No. I, you know, this is one of those cases of the overnight success being 25 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it took at least a weekend. <laughs> um, it, it, as, I, as I said, it's been the enduring question for us. And we really started uh, from an academic perspective in the literature. And as you and I have discussed before, uh, there are a number of scholars that are foundational in our work, but Albert Bandura is probably the, the central figure in, in so much of what we've done. He's, he uh, uh, is the father of, uh, of social learning theory and, and one of the greatest contributors to cognitive psychology, but, but really has, has looked systematically at, at how you drive uh, wide-scale change as well as individual change. And uh, after, after careful review of literature, then we started looking around the world and saying, who's out there that's doing it well, that's taking good theory and is implementing it in ways that help them accomplish really remarkable results through behavior change? And, uh, and so we spent years and years uh, walking the streets of the planet and, uh, and studying the work of what we called influencers. And then we've attempted to say, could we not just explain after the fact why something worked, but also could we predict in advance when it will and actually implement things? So we've been involved in, in dozens and dozens of, uh, of fascinating projects ourselves trying to design intentional influence strategies and have seen that there really is a physics to this. This isn't as soft and squishy and unpredictable as a lot of us like to say that it is. When you have a good grounding in theory and apply that to solving a problem, it, you, can, we, you can have remarkable power and predictiveness in, uh, in creating real and dramatic change. So I actually want to start with the soft and the squishy. Because whenever I bring this material up, I tell the marshmallow story. <laughs> because that really tells, this is the story of the kids. I'll let you actually tell the full story. But the, the, this story, for me, really helps to kind of enter into a discussion about how much of behavior is kind of pre-coded and inevitable, and how much can actually be influenced. So is the marshmallow story as big for you as it is for me? I think it's a perfect story to illustrate the need for a broader model of behavior. So yeah, uh, so, so you know, back in the early 60s, Walter Michel was, was studying delay of gratification. And uh, uh, many people are familiar with the study. It's a really fun one, and you've probably seen replications of it on videos. Little four-year-old kids with a marshmallow sitting in front of them. And Michel said to the kids, hey, you can eat that marshmallow if you want, but, but when I come back in a little while, if it's still there, I'll give you a second marshmallow. So suddenly these kids are in torment. 
and you can see you can see the agony on their faces because who would not want two marshmallows? It's it's twice as good as one marshmallow. And so he watched the kids, and of course, uh, about a third of them immediately consume it. About a third wait for a little while, and and then eventually collapse. And in about 15 minutes, when he returns, uh, a third or fewer still have the marshmallow there, and he rewards them. What was fascinating, though, about his work was uh, what what happened later in his collaboration with Albert Bandura. So. Uh, Michelle follows these kids for 20 years and finds that the capacity at age four to delay gratification is incredibly predictive of many life outcomes. Uh, the kids that, uh, that can delay gratification score hundreds of points higher on their SAT scores 10 and 15 years later. Uh, these kids uh, graduate from college more consistently. They're promoted more often. They have more durable relationships. They, just everything gets better because of that one core skill. But here's the mistake. So, so looking at that, uh, Michelle says, is this a trait? Uh, does this reinforce personality theory that you kind of just have something from the time that you're born, uh, these fixed traits that produce these outcomes? Bandura looked at it and he said, nah. I, I, a, a colleague uh, at the time at Stanford uh, with Michelle, he looked at, uh, at Michelle's work and he said, no, watch these kids. He said, they're using strategies. They have skills. Now, they may not know they have the skills, and they may not even know how they acquired them, but these are trainable skills. When you start watching the video carefully, you realize that the kids who don't eat the marshmallow are looking away from the marshmallow. They're engaging themselves in little tasks. Some of them are walking away from the marshmallow and tracing lines on the wall with their finger. They have distraction strategies that they're using intentionally to divert them from the temptation. So Bandura said, well, my hypothesis is this is learnable, and if we teach this to other kids, then it will make a significant difference in their performance in the marshmallow experiment. So he does. Uh, he shows a little video clip to some of the kids uh, before they go in, and those that see a few tactics on video are 50% more successful at this. So, so what are the implications? Well, one of the most significant is that you and I tend to commit the fundamental attribution error. When we're looking at kids who complete school assignments on time, who are punctual for class, uh, who persist in the face of defeat, we often think, well, you're, you have it or you don't. It's a, it's a single source of influence model that says personal motivation or the capacity to exert will is, uh, is, is the predictor of this outcome. What, what Bandura did was blow out the right side of the model. He said, it's not just a motivation issue, it's also an ability issue, and therefore it's a learnable uh, capacity. So as, as we've studied influencers across the world, we found that they not only double the size of the model by adding ability to motivation, they also, uh, you know, six times the model, by looking at other forces that affect the motivation and ability of an individual that are remarkably predictive in somebody's choices. And if you and I want to learn to solve really important human problems, we have to learn to see and then engage every one of these important sources of influence. So Carol Dweck came on the show, and, uh, and her book, Mindset, I think probably follows in this tradition. Yeah. But we very much appreciated that. And I think uh, her influence within the field of education as well it has been growing. Um, uh, we had a good friend who taught kindergarten for a long time, and she had the kids do lots of puzzles. 
And in retrospect, I now really appreciate the degree to which that particular activity was helping the kids to build and develop certain skills. But that would be really hard to be measured on a test. I think if she were in some of these um, situations now where they're tracking teachers and giving them scores, I'm not sure that, that would be her activities would, would be reflected in those scores. Are there times when these certain kinds of activities are difficult to recognize because the results aren't as obvious as you might want them to be? I don't think they are. I, I think the problem is is not a problem with testing, but with tests. That uh, that if we're we're content focused on the tests rather than uh, than really looking at some of the life skills that our children need to be able to succeed in in every domain, then uh, th then we're really testing not just the wrong things, but uh, uh, insufficient things probably. So. You know, I, Bandura was probably one of the best at demonstrating that, that you can parse out some of these really critical competencies. You can identify the skill component. You can train it. And so therefore, you can also observe it and test for its presence. And uh, I, I just think that we have such a limited view of, uh, of the behavior that we need to foster in our youth uh, so that our tests are insufficient. I like that answer. And it looks like Peggy does as well in the chat. Um, so if we look at the influencer model and we start on the right-hand side with the results, one of the things I think I've heard you say is that this model is a little bit value neutral or is value neutral, meaning uh, you can use these same principles for things that some people would find good and other people would not find um, as, as healthy. Um, for me, it occurred to me that uh, you could measure results and, and let's say that the the goal was to lose weight. And you could, um, that's probably not going to be a very useful indicator there. But is this value neutral? Y yes. I, and, and because of that, it's, it's really important and valuable in both explaining why bad things are happening now as well as uh, intentionally intervening to make good things happen. So uh, if we want to understand an obesity epidemic in the US, uh, for instance, uh, the model will help you understand how we're perfectly organized to create an obesity epidemic. Uh, this isn't just about people having uh, insufficient willpower. It's a, it's a complex set of influences that really overdetermine that outcome. Uh, when when uh, we use it on poverty alleviation, an interest that you and I share deeply, I know, Steve, uh, you can look at how we've perfectly designed things, maybe unintentionally so, to foster the kind of habits and behaviors that keep people in persistent poverty. So it's, it's helpful both for explaining or creating bad habits and bad outcomes or for the reverse. So the way the model works is you clarify your, the results that you're looking for. You then go to uh, try and identify the vital behaviors or positive deviant activity, deviant activities that lead to the results. And then you use these sources of influence that you have studied and have become so valuable in terms of getting to the vital behaviors. Um, I want to I jump just a little bit ahead knowing that this may make more sense in retrospect to those of you who are encountering this for the first time. But it occurred to me that identifying the results and finding the vital behaviors could actually be a part of the influence model if the organizations 
members participated in it. The, typically, do you get to the results and the vital behaviors studying independent of the members, or do you involve the group of people involved in actually determining what those are? Yeah, the, the, the process for arriving at answers is one of the most important predictors of the success in implementing those answers. So usually the social system that's going to need to implement the influence strategy uh, is influenced by engaging in the conversations around what results we're trying to achieve and how we will measure that. And then the vital behaviors that disproportionately affect those results. And then finally, the, the sources of influence that are shaping people's choices today that need to be turned in a different direction. So absolutely, it's, uh, it's critical not just that you get the answers, but that you get them in a way that, that engages the system. Well, I think we'll end up coming back to that. Um, when David was on the show, he talked about doing work for KIPP. And, and KIPP is an organization that many people um, feel has a sort of a mixed bag because of their, um, their vision of education is not necessarily the same one that, um, say, at a big picture school or, or some of the more progressive schools would employ. But in fact, they have particular issues and problems that the model helps to address. And again, uh, you, this model can be used uh, independent of your particular viewpoint, but specific to the kinds of things you care about. So let's talk about vital behaviors. Um, uh, I, I sort of substitute positive deviance as a phrase when I think of vital behaviors. Is that an appropriate substitution, or is there more nuance there? Well, I, th I think positive deviance uh, as a, a study discipline helps in all three dimensions. So uh, definitely positive deviance is a great methodology for saying what are the vital behaviors. Are there, are there a critical couple or three behaviors that happen in positive deviant communities or systems that explain the difference uh, in outcomes that they have with others? So, uh, so, so that's, uh, I think, a useful discipline. But then once you've got a, a captive positive deviance community moving to the left on the model and saying, all right, how have they engaged the sources of influence differently is also a, a really rich opportunity. So let's, uh, can you give us some examples of, of vital behaviors or positive deviance? They don't have to be from education. It's sort of the famous one is the, I guess it's the farmers in Vietnam. But what are ones that you use to kind of help people understand the, what a vital behavior is? Yeah, yeah. Let's, if we can start at the right of the model, I'll share a recent experience with you. So I was in Nicaragua just a few weeks ago and looking at a program that's doing a lot around poverty alleviation. And, and one of the points I want to make sure we don't gloss over is how critical it is to, to pick the right results. Uh, and so for, for years, I've been involved with microcredit work around the world, this, this process of making small loans, particularly to women, to help them expand uh, uh, their own micro-businesses and increase income in their families. And, uh, and silly me. Um, looking at these organizations and saying how many loans are you making is a measure of success and is loan repayment rate high, that's a measure of success. That's kind of the doctrine uh, that we've been following for, for the last 10 or 15 years in the microcredit world. So here's this organization in Nicaragua that says, no, that isn't, that isn't the result we want. The result we want is for somebody's income to go up and their savings to go up. So I, I, I look at this organization and that's where they began. They say some of the things we might do to help you increase your incomes or, or income or savings uh, are things like training you in entrepreneurial skills or basic business skills or helping you get access to credit. But the result we're after and the thing we're going to measure every two weeks is what was your income from the last two weeks and how much have you saved? 
That one shift has driven everything else in the model of that organization. The fact that every single employee is focused exclusively on that has driven a mindset that is not about how many loans have we made or what repayment rates have we gotten. And, uh, and so it's, it's critical that we're clear at the, at the front end. Uh, one of the things that KIPP has done well is they started with the result a while back saying, we want to get kids all the way to college. It's a college prep orientation. Now again, you could quibble with, is that the right uh, goal or not? But that was their focus. They've realized more recently that many kids were making it to college, but not through college. And so they've completely rethought the way they measure their results, and their new orientation is through college, not to college. That changes the system. That changes what we emphasize. That, that pushes on the system to say, are there different vital behaviors? Are there different skills or different capacities or different support that we need to provide so that they're getting all the way across the real finish line? Now again, I'm not suggesting that's gospel or anything like that, but hopefully uh, as people are, are listening to this conversation, we understand what a profound influence decision you make when you plant a flag on a particular result. And too many times we gloss over that and we start moving to the left on the model far too quickly and we end up aiming our resources at the wrong things. I'm reminded of Deming and of a lot of the total quality movement. Does that factor at all into some of how you think about these um, results? I'm, I'm sure that I, that a lot of the work that Deming did, Deming did is uh, is in the ether, and you know the the whole uh, beginning with with Deming and the total quality movement, and then even a lot that's done around Six Sigma today begins by saying let's get the results right. You know let's let's start outside the organization and not with some internal incestuous metrics, but let's really pick the right result. And and the reason we have to do that is because it influences human behavior. The reason you measure things is to influence human behavior. We tend to lose sight of that. We think there's some other abstract purpose served by our measurement, but it's an influence strategy. So let's ask ourselves, what will measuring X do to the orientation, incentives, mindsets, and, and behaviors of the people in our system? One of the things I've always liked about Deming is the degree to which I feel that it's generative. I know there are different definitions for that word, but that the more you teach people about the process, the better they become at actually self-managing and perpetuating the process. And in that example you just gave, I heard the same thing, which was the whole organization kind of rethought what they were doing. And this is you know, highly transparent. This is not manipulative. This is saying uh, we're, we're going to identify the results that, that are actually going to drive the best process, and, and everybody is aware of what you're doing, right? Yes, yeah, that's exactly the case. The, to the degree it's open and transparent, you have a higher likelihood of it helping drive change in the organization. So one thing I took away from you in the day-long training that was so impactful to me was this idea of when you look for the vital behaviors, pulling your own organization out of the equation saying that, you know, not what are we doing or what have we been trying to do, but if we look at the problem that we're trying to solve, who's doing it well or where is their success without necessarily thinking about our own circumstance? Did I glean that from a rare moment or is that something you normally say? Yeah, I, I, I think that's uh, hopefully something that I normally say, um, but it's, it's one of the distinguishing characteristics of influencers is their capacity to, to uh, 
to set aside all of the legacy systems and mindsets and to be able to really ask, what is our mission? What is the result we're after? How should we measure this and not be a slave to our current funding model or our current staffing model or our current infrastructure? And too many of us get trapped in that, and so we become functional experts but, but mission failures. Uh, we, we do what we do really well, but we fail to either adapt to change or to, uh, to continue to optimize our capacity to accomplish our critical goals. So I think if I were to quote you in full from that day, it was that if you pull yourself out and identify those vital behaviors, sometimes uh, identifying anew what those behaviors are can actually lead you to the end result you want substantially faster and, and more easily than you thought you could ever get there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the, the, the empowering notion of vital behaviors is that you really don't have to influence a hundred things. So you, you think of a school system, and it's easy to think, gosh, if I made a list of everything a student needs to be able to do, and, uh, and all of the, the habits you want them to cultivate for, for life success, good heavens, I mean, it would die of its own weight. And I think our curricula very often reflects that lack of clarity and lack of, of capacity to prioritize. Uh, so, some of what we're trying to do. It, it turns out that, that influencers kind of get it that even with very complex problems that we're trying to solve, there are usually a couple of behaviors that are the biggest drivers of change. So one of the challenges that, that we have when we're trying to create a robust influence strategy is really doing the thought work to, to identify what those behaviors are. So, so let me take you back to Nicaragua for a moment, and then we can jump into a school system as well. The, there are two kinds of vital behaviors. Uh, some are content and some are process behaviors. So uh, a content behavior might be, uh, in terms of poverty alleviation, that I, I save 10% of the income that I bring in every week, even if I have small income. So, so that's a very specific targeted thing that very directly leads to a better result. But there's, there are process behaviors, too. And that's what I found in this organization that's doing such remarkable work in Nicaragua. What they do is they engage all of their clients in a learning process that, that every two weeks they're stepping back and they're saying, what's going right and wrong in my business? And, and what will I do to analyze and adjust that this next, uh, this next two weeks? So the, these, these short-term, these proximal goals, sort of a process assessment of looking at my data from the past two weeks, drawing some conclusions, uh, determining what action I'll take over the next two weeks, and then repeating that cycle on a regular basis. That's a process behavior. And engaging anybody in that is sort of the core of continuous improvement. And that's what, that, that's what Deming, if, as you referred to earlier, did with his TDCA cycle. And, uh, and that's what they're doing down here in this Cause for Hope program as well. So remarkably, is just helping them intentionally engage in that in a thoughtful way. And that causes them to make steady progress economically in their lives. So you look at a school system and you ask the same thing. The, uh, I, you know, what, what are student vital behaviors? that would cause students to continue to improve their performance, not just to do well today, but to do better tomorrow than they did today on a regular basis. And, uh, and, and that's where the, the influence strategy needs to focus. 
So in the case of KIPP, where their determination is they want to measure getting through college, they may find that there are some behaviors that become identifiable that are much more important for getting through college than they were for getting to college. Yeah, yeah, and, and I haven't seen that play out completely, but I suspect there, there are some adjustments that are taking place on that right now because the, the through college pulls on some, some different kinds of uh, elements. Uh, you know, how can you work uh, independently in a social system that, that you're not comfortable in? Uh, how can you engage a support system for yourself uh, when you're in a, a brand new place that doesn't feel like that it was designed for you? And so there are a variety of challenges that through college presents me with that to college and just being in a school that has a lot of people kind of like me in it uh, and a system that was designed for people like me you know, might not require. I think you would really love the work of Cal Newport. He wrote a book called How to Be a High School Superstar. And what he did is he went to college and interviewed students who had done well getting into the schools they wanted to get into and, and were succeeding in school. And then, again, in a very sort of uh, dispassionate or stepping back way said, uh, what can I learn from this that I didn't know and wasn't thinking about related to success in getting into college and then being successful in college? And he calls them relaxed superstars. He discovers that there's a set of character traits where they don't actually do all of the extracurriculars. They do a select few that they really care about. And uh, it's an intriguing look that I think uh, very much sort of fits your influencer model. Um, I have a question about vital behaviors. And, um, and maybe this is what I was trying to express earlier about the weight issue that I, that I couldn't finish the sentence. Um, what, how do you distinguish between successful medicine taking and eating healthy, meaning there are going to be times when it, when it looks like the vital behavior is taking the medicine because it actually makes things better, but there is a different level at which healthy eating would be the solution. H how does that play out? Yeah, I, I think the, probably the problem is usually one click right on the model. So if the vital behaviors are in error, it's probably because the results were articulated wrong. And you know, we, we, we've heard the old saw that we, we often have good definitions of disease but not of health. And so I, I think if our, our definition of a result is an absence of symptoms, then that can focus us on a vital behavior like uh, you know, medication compliance. But if you change the definition of the result and we come up with a definition of health, that has to do with, uh, with the capacity of your body to, to perform in a way that helps you accomplish what's important to you in life. If we can quantify that and measure that, I think it starts driving us in a different direction. We see that in the, in the healthcare world today where there's a real push just as there's been with the positive psychology movement to, uh, to come up with definitions of health and to try to create accountable care organizations that are producing health, not just the absence of disease. So uh, once again, we're at get the results wrong and the rest of the model is worthless. Yeah, and intriguingly, wrong may almost be a hard word to use in this case. I, I mean, I, uh, I think it would be very interesting to look at Kip's results and think about them in terms of medicine versus health, um, just because of the, the broad variety of circumstances we end up talking about in the show. And at the same time, I don't want to call Kip's approach wrong. I would just say it's a, it's a different angle. And, it, and that, um, that they'll get the results identified with, with the results they've chosen. Um, and and yeah. I, I'm not sure I've done a good job articulating that. But it, it seems to me that you know, right and wrong may be, may be too hard a gradation there. 
So I want to move to yeah. the sources of influence because I feel like this is sort of a, the brilliance of the how, how the whole model pulls together. So you've clarified the results, then you've looked for the vital behaviors that, that get to the results, even if they would surprise you or be different than you thought they were. Then the question is, how do you help people move to the vital behaviors, right? Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's exactly where you go next. So if you want to play out the, the KIPP example, you know, one of, one of their vital behaviors, uh, well, two of them are, are on time every time. So they, they want the, the children to learn uh, to consistently uh, show up, be there on time every single time, develop a, a habit of punctuality, which is sort of an entry behavior. It, it, it's, it's illustrative of a lot of what they're trying to do. It's, it, it, it sort of gets at uh, deliberate practice and integrity in some ways. And then the second is every assignment every time that we complete our assignments, that homework is turned in. Now, those can sound really rudimentary, but they start pushing on a whole lot of different factors and developing kind of uh, mastery skills and life skills that I think are really what KIPP is after. But if those were your vital behaviors, and we can quibble about whether they should be or not, but if, if those are your vital behaviors, then you start moving to the left on the model and you ask yourself, all right, if you're in a system now where kids are, are showing up 60% of the time on time, and assignments are completed 40% of the time, how are we perfectly designed to create that kind of behavior? So let's not blame the kids. Let's figure out how the entire system has been set up for that. You begin on the upper left of the model and, and look at personal motivation. I'm sure this is an area that you've explored deeply, Steve. But we, we often think to ourselves, well, how can we get kids to do an unnatural act called completing a homework assignment? And that very question is the problem. We're, we're assuming that there's no possibility that a homework assignment or a worksheet or an activity that I'm engaged in could be personally motivating, could be intrinsically satisfying. And that's one of the root cause problems we've got that has set us up to create behavior that, that we despair over that's just absolutely unnecessary. Because you and I both know that there is nothing more intrinsically satisfying in the world than accomplishing something. But for some reason, we've, we've disconnected uh, the, the process of learning from a feeling of accomplishment. It feels like tedium. It feels like selling out to an authority figure. Uh, it, it feels meaningless. It feels vacuous. It feels like a sellout. I mean, that, that's people's experience of homework. It's a check-the-box experience. So one of, the, one of the things Kip has tried to do, or anybody trying to solve that vital behavior problem has to do, is, is think much more carefully about how do we design a learning experience so that it is intrinsically satisfying? And, and I want you to notice that, that while we could explore that in rich detail, it's still only one-sixth of the model. And if we did a good job on that first one and did an equal quality job on the other six, that's why you start seeing what we've seen in our influencer research, that the likelihood of changing behavior doesn't just increase uh, incrementally, it increases exponentially. You literally can over-determine some of the positive, pro-social, healthy behaviors that you're after. But the process is really looking at how have we disengaged that one source of influence, and how can we engage it in a far more profound way, not just compensate for it. So I, I know this is a little long-winded, but let me just finish one thought here if I can. What we tend to do is, because we assume that you can't design learning activities in a way that are intrinsically motivating, is we compensate for that. 
we use social influence. So if you drop down to source three on the model, social motivation, we use pressure from teachers or embarrassment in front of the class when I have to report that I didn't complete an assignment. That's a compensatory strategy. And it's not what influencers do. They try to solve the root problem, not just offset it with something else. We also use structural motivation, source five, to compensate for a lack of personal motivation. We try to say, can we use rewards and grades and incentives or, again, punishments or ratting you out to your parents in a parent-teacher conference. We try to work around the problem rather than working through it. What good influencers do is say, what's the problem I've got in this single source, and how do I engage that one robustly? So this is where I think, in retrospect, I got lost the day I came to the training. So I'm, I'm hoping that my experience will allow us to uh, kind of pull back to the 30,000-foot level and for me to describe something that may be useful to those who are seeing this for the first time. So part of what happened in that marshmallow experiment was the discovery that th th there was more uh, um, there's a richer understanding of um, accomplishing or how something got accomplished than was originally thought, which was that it was some sort of inherent motivation. And what you've discovered over the course of time is that you're able to put these sources of influence, the things that influence us, into six broad categories. And I'll let you drill down on that. And that, uh, that a lot of us sort of live in one quadrant. There's a certain way in which we are motivated or we think about life. And so we typically tend to kind of use that one tool or the hammer, um, thinking that every problem is a nail. And that it only gets us a certain distance because there's actually six sort of broader ways in which people are influenced. And we typically drill down on one, and then we're frustrated and unsatisfied that something doesn't work. So if you'll indulge me, let's use the example of losing weight. And can you give a brief description of how that would work in each of the six quadrants so that those who are hearing this for the first time can see that, oh, there are six different ways that I'm influenced or that I can help influence somebody in terms of a particular goal they have? Yeah, certainly. So, so let's make this personal. Um, I, I think I may have shared the example of, uh, of my neighbor with you when we were together, Steve, that, uh, uh, who had a heart attack. Um, and one of the, the reasons that he had not just his first heart attack, but his fourth heart attack that did substantial damage to, uh, uh, to his heart was because he's been uh, unsuccessful at changing his eating habits. Uh, exercises well, but we'll focus for a moment on eating. So you know, he came to me after he was released from the hospital and said, I've, I've got to make it work this time, and can we talk this through? So we started talking about results. And where does he want to be from a body mass index standpoint or from a weight standpoint and blood pressure and a number of factors that define those results, and how is he going to measure those on a regular basis? And then we started moving to vital behaviors. And uh, one of the best ways to find vital behaviors is to look for what we call crucial moments. It turns out that not every moment of the 24-hour day is of equal importance in influencing your outcome. There are just a few moments often in a day or even a week that disproportionately affect outcomes. So you think about those. So I asked my, my neighbor, let's call him Jim, to think about it. He goes, well, that's easy for me. He says, I do pretty well at breakfast. I'm not a big breakfast eater. He says, you know, daytime, lunchtime, you know, I could do a little bit better. But my big fall-down time is between 6 and 8 p.m. He says, I'm stressed out all day long, and I, I relax in the evening, and the best way to relax is just to gorge myself, and so I snack on unhealthy foods. So notice what's just happened to the problem. I've shrunk it now from this, this amorphous weight loss goal to some very specific measures, but also now to a very narrow time frame, to 6 to 8 o'clock every day. 
And, and that to him starts to feel pretty, pretty empowering. That, that that's a problem the size of which I can think about. So then we start saying, all right, what do you have to do? He says, well, I just need to avoid eating unhealthy snacks during that time. And I said, OK, great. Well, let's aim at that. That's, that's your vital behavior is eat a healthy dinner and then uh, not snack or not eat unhealthy snacks uh, up until the time that you're heading off to bed uh, later on. So now let's move to the left. I want to just very quickly illustrate how every one of these six sources of influence is a problem for him and how this guy can never possibly succeed if he just works on one of them. So personal motivation. The, the first problem is that there is immense pleasure in stuffing chocolate decadence down your cake hole when you're feeling stressed out. All of us know that. It feels good. And not doing it when you know that piece of chocolate decadence is in the refrigerator doesn't feel good. In fact, it can feel painful to us. It creates anxiety and stress as I'm thinking about this and trying to deny myself of it. And, and so we have a personal motivation problem. The second problem is a personal ability one. As we saw with the Walter Michel research, the capacity to delay gratification is a skill. Oftentimes, the people who have a particular bad habit don't have the skills that those who have the good habit do. But we don't see it as a skill problem, so we don't enumerate and identify those. He was unconscious of calorie consumption, of how much different eating choices were affecting him. The emotional management skills were something he was lacking. Stress management skills were something he was lacking. As many of us know, Oftentimes, eating is uh, a numbing strategy. It isn't about the food. It's about altering my mood. So a lack of awareness and competence around that is a big deal. So that's just the first two. But now let's look at sources three and four. It turns out that bad habits are almost always a team sport. So there are always people who are enabling and motivating or encouraging uh, either the bad behavior or the good behavior. So you, you start looking for accomplices. Well, it turns out that, that unless you're the, uh, the nutritional gatekeeper in your home, the person that does almost all of the shopping and selects uh, food choices for dinner, unless you're that person, what that means is about 73% of your eating choices are made by somebody else. So who selects the dinner menu? Who does the shopping and puts things in the refrigerator? Who decides what's going to be set out on the counter where it's visible? They, they encourage and enable some of the habits and choices that you're making. To the degree they model different choices, that has a huge influence. Uh, Nick Christophus of Harvard uh, demonstrated that if your friends are overweight, the odds of you becoming overweight go up 60%. And oftentimes, it's not because they're handing you donuts. Just the fact that you're around them causes you almost transparently, almost imperceptibly, to redefine in your mind what a normal body looks like. If everybody around you is, is, is 40 to 50 pounds overweight, you start feeling like that's a normal body size, even without being conscious of that. So you can play an accomplice role without having an agenda. So we walked through that and said, let's name all the accomplices around you, the people at work and the people at home and the people in your social network. My goodness, it was a populated list by the time he was done. Well, now you look down at sources five and six, and you'll start to realize you've got problems there too. Source five is the influence of incentives. It turns out that our, our economy is perfectly organized to incent people to buy bad stuff and not good stuff. And, and finally, 
the, the structural ability. This is the influence of your physical environment, not the people around you, but the physical environment. Uh, my neighbor Jim was never more than eight feet away from an unhealthy snack whether it was in his office and stuff sitting around, uh, his assistant who had a bowl full of stuff on her desk, uh, a vending machine that was just a few steps away. He, he described how they had a ritual at their office, which is more of a social factor, but it became structural because they actually had this, this giant thing that people brought candy and treats and pastries and other and put them into. They called it the trough. Um, and, and, and this physical factor that was always on people's minds affected their mental agenda. It was a cue that, that prompted them to eat unhealthily. But then at home, if you just did a, an audit of the physical space, you'd find that he was always in easy reach of the bad stuff, and the, and the good stuff was far and out of reach. So you know, I know that's a little bit of an extended monologue here, Steve, but, but I, I want people to get that whether it's fostering healthy be or, or, or more uh, uh, effective behavior in students, or poverty alleviation behavior, or eating behavior, when it seems like an intractable habit, it's always because every one of these elements are conspiring in a way that we really don't want them to. And then you and I come up with a trivial influence strategy that tweaks one of them, and we're mystified about why behavior doesn't change. I just love this. And for me, I tend to actually think you've given examples sort of of how things were working against them. I kind of like to turn this around and think of how ways in which you could look at these different quadrants and develop solutions based on them, like uh, structural ability for me, and you're going to have to tell me if I got this right, would be selling your car and using a bicycle to go everywhere. You're sort of creating Bingo. a structural responsibility for going there. Now, I tend to live in quadrant four. I love thinking. I love helping people get involved mm. and participate. And so I tend to, my solutions tend to start at number four. But what happened when we did this as a family was you know, we kind of looked at where our kids were, you know, what, what area they lived in, and sort of how, how my... Um, inclinations toward a certain quadrant might not address the areas in which they would need the most help. So, so you, I mean, no one's going to get anything benefit out of my scribbles here. But this was really interesting for me to kind of go through and say, at a personal level, a social level, and a structural level, what are things that can be done in the motivation and the ability area to help get to the place we want to go? And um, I, again, I know that people hearing this for the first time are going to have to think through this. But ultimately, the idea is that once you've identified those vital behaviors, if you look at this fuller model of how we're influenced and how other people are influenced, you develop richer strategies for actually implementing the change that you want to get to. Fair? Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect description of it. And, and it's so exciting. We've worked with so many teams. We were in Ghana recently working with a mining company that had a horrendous safety problem. Uh, just many vehicle pedestrian accidents and, and safety issues in the mind, uh, literally leading to, to death and dismemberment and just awful things. And they had been working on this for years and years and years. But when they took the model and started analyzing what they'd been doing, they realized they'd tried almost every one of the sources of influence, one at a time. They would try one, and it wouldn't work. And they'd say, oh, well, that kind of stunk. And so then they'd move to source six, and they'd try that one. Well, that didn't work. And then they'd move. The, the, the beauty of the model is it helps us realize that we have overdetermined the, the current behavior. And if you want new behavior, you'll have to get a critical mass of all of these sources of influence. 
If you've got five working against you and one working for you, it's a simple math problem to figure out which is going to win. So I, I, I love your family's worksheet there. Well, I want to draw this even closer to education because I think there's a connection here that's going to ring some bells for people. And that is that if I look at this map, and, and I, I don't think I'm going to be able to, to have you see my cursor on the screen, but um, the six sources of influence for me map really closely to the value of gaming. So if you think about uh, organizations that produce commercial games, they have a desire to keep you in involved and active and for you to tell your friends and for people to buy the game, right? I mean, there's a financial interest for them. So, so they build into the game ways to, to keep you excited and interested in, in playing the game. And it feels to me as though they work on all of these levels. Right, so there's a personal ability. They scaffold to make sure that you're learning skills that you need to get to the next level. So you'll stay involved in the game, and they're helping teach you. There's the social influence of a guild or a group of people that you're playing the game together with. And oftentimes, those guilds help train each other in order exactly. to accomplish a larger goal. And then you have just the structure of the game and how the game is intended to bring you from level to level. And, and so, again, longer than we have time for tonight, but it feels to me as though part of the uh, value of thinking about gaming and education is not necessarily the gamification of education, but thinking about how games uh, address all six areas of influence and, and by virtue of that are very uh, engaging to the, to the player. And can we then think of education in those same ways? Can we think of uh, helping address the, the interest and the uh, desire of students at all six levels? Yeah, uh, unfortunately the word game has made it sound like that, uh, that engaging behavior is the province of, of pointless activities. And, and, and I know that's not the way that, uh, that we have to use the term, but oftentimes we think that there's something. But, but the, the wonderful thing that you're doing, Steve, is saying, no, we can be thoughtful about why something we call a, a, um, a, a massive multiplayer online game is working in terms of these six sources of influence. That's why it's working, not because it's quote unquote a game, but because they've made something that's intrinsically pleasurable very quickly uh, happen as you engage. They've designed, if you look at Source 2, a deliberate practice opportunity on early, early on to help you acquire skills so that you feel some competence and, and hope in your capacity to succeed and master. They've created a profound social experience with immediate social feedback. As you work through the model, you start realizing how our education systems often are exactly the opposite on every dimension. We don't have to turn them into games to make them work better. We just have to tap into every one of these sources of influence in a much more intentional way. I also think it's helped me to see some of the value of Web 2.0 in a way that can be articulated, which is that the production of material that's seen by others, that, that, uh, that, that really uh, moves education from uh, pretty much that, those first two quadrants to including quadrants three and four, is um, one of the reasons why Web 2.0 has really captivated so many educators, because they notice their students are much more engaged because it's bringing them to that social level. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly the case. And they, you, know, you, you think about the potential in education if we learn to tap into sources three and four more consistently. So often what happens is you have the teacher's social influence in the classroom 
that is trying to influence uh, the, the kids toward, the students towards uh, some positive vital behaviors, some, some more productive ones. And then you have everybody else in their social system moving them the opposite direction. We've kind of surrendered the opportunity to figure out the way influencers do. No, how do I get everybody else to be uh, friends instead of accomplices? How do I get the whole social system moving people in a positive direction? And that's the, the systems that have made this work. They, they've cracked that nut, among others. So one of the uh, things that we're talking a lot about in education right now, in terms of education reform, and this, is, this will be our final topic, is the role of narrative. So as you were talking about uh, KIPP's sort of uh, making sure people are punctual and on time, that very much falls into kind of the factory model narrative for education. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, as, we, as we think about that narrative, we realize it's, it's had an enormous amount of power in terms of defining how we think about schooling. Um, and another narrative would be sort of versus the factory would be entrepreneurial. And clearly kids are moving into a world in which some are going to get rewarded in a factory model and others are going to need to be highly entrepreneurial. What's the role of narrative and how does it fit the influencer model? Where does that piece come in? Yeah, well, and, and, and first of all, I don't know that the vital behaviors I described from KIPP would necessarily have to align with, with a factory model. I, I think it's possible in entrepreneurial models uh, to, to find that vital behaviors like those are critical as well. So I don't know that I'd see as clean a distinction there. But I, I think the, I, the, you're kind of taking us back to where we began, which is the, the way we conceive of the model we're trying to create is what will drive our definition of results and success. And, uh, and that will then profoundly shift, potentially, the, the vital behaviors we choose and therefore how we're going to set up the sources of influence to try to lead us in a positive direction. So I, I, I think being thoughtful about the, the narrative model will help us keep out of the, the type 1 errors that we so often commit in, uh, in, in any pursuit. Uh, that's fascinating, and I'm, I really appreciate you taking us back to that right side of the model, because if we look at the current sort of national narrative around education and the high-stakes testing, uh, it's very hard for people to even grasp what's being done, say, in a place like Finland that's been leading the world in test scores but doesn't have the same narrative around testing. So it seems as though you have kind of you have quite a job there at the results end of um, kind of drilling down on how you build a narrative around the results to help people buy into them. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case, and it and it takes us back to our, our earlier conversation about you know do we do we define the outcome of uh, of education as a list of content competencies, um, or, or are there more life competencies that uh, that that are larger than that? that if developed well will produce the content competencies and much more beyond that. And, uh, and, and I wonder if that's, uh, if that's reflective of the, the Finland and others narrative that you're describing. Fascinating. The hour always goes way too fast. Uh, um, Joseph, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I, and I know we're introducing um, your thinking and the books and your co-authors thinking uh, in, a, in, a, in an area that where you um, where I don't see people talking about your ideas as much as I would like them to. So I appreciate it, and I'm hopeful that, um, that we'll continue to be able to have this conversation and, and, uh, and, and watch you have greater influence in education. Thanks so much for being here. 
Well, the, the hour has been intrinsically satisfying to me, so that, that was all I needed to get me engaged. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Most appreciated. Thanks to you for joining. Thanks to Joseph. Uh, coming up next week, Jennifer Fox talks about uh, the problems with traditional content. We are going to go the opposite direction of Kip with that one, I can promise. But Mark Tucker brings us back as he talks about surpassing Shanghai in test scores. Again, hopefully what we're doing is a lot of appreciative inquiry here and very much being in the study mode to determine um, the results. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. My pleasure. Take care, Steve. Thanks. Take care.